0: You're listening to the TB Pod, a podcast for clinicians and policymakers caring for patients with tuberculosis. In these podcasts, we chat with expert clinicians, researchers, policymakers, and advocates about their work in the field of tuberculosis. The TB Pod is prepared by the Australasian Clinical TB Network, ACTNET, and the TB Forum. You can subscribe on iTunes or download episodes through the ACTNET website. Today we're joined by senior respiratory physician and specialist in tuberculosis medicine, Dr Hazel Goldberg. Dr Goldberg is going to share with us today her approach to important clinical situations that are encountered by patients presenting to tuberculosis clinics. So welcome to the pod today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Now, when you begin introducing a doctor who hasn't worked in a TB clinic before to what's important, what are the stages that you think are important for a doctor in a TB clinic to understand mm. tuberculosis?
1: So what I often do is sit down with a grid which goes down the left-hand column with Classes or phases of TB, and across the board, the definitions and the outcomes, and what we do about each one. So clinically, we're always putting people into diagnostic boxes because that helps us know the natural history of that person and what we can do to modify that. Uh, so we go through class one, two, three, and f- four, zero being a class where the human has never met the TB organism. Um, but and we go through those classes which are defined by serological testing, clinical situation and radiology, um, and and then we do a variety of investigations to confirm that and look at, at how we can uh, modify the natural history.
0: So how does the biology of tuberculosis affect how we think about the patient in front of us?
1: So. Um, I guess the simplistic way to look at it is that as you, as the human, inhale the TB organism, there's an immune response and a spectrum of outcomes. Uh, at one end of the spectrum, you may actually eliminate the organism. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, the organism gets the upper hand, if you like, and within uh, weeks or months, you will develop an active um, disease process that we call active TB or TB disease. Uh, In between there's this whole spectrum whereby you don't actually develop the disease but you don't actually eliminate the organism and we tend to call that latent TB infection. It's not a disease or a condition, it's a subgroup of people who run a small risk of developing TB. And because we have opportunities for prevention at that point, what we would call secondary prevention once you've been infected, Um, it's a very important class for us to look at or group for us to look at because we have treatment options, that is preventive treatment as opposed to the treatment options we've got for the active disease. So if I can continue. Yeah, so
0: uh, tell me about class one.
1: So class one is the worst one to ask about. (laughs) Class zero, if I can put it in context. Tell me me about class zero. So class zero is where you as the human organism have never met the TB organism and in essence you should have negative serological testing bearing in mind that the tuberculin skin test will be positive for uh, perhaps due to uh, BCG vaccination in the past or exposure to atypical mycobacteria whereas the gamma interferon assays in general should not... Um, be positive because of those factors. Uh, but in class zero, in theory, you would otherwise have a negative serological result. You would have a, a normal chest X-ray from a TB point of view. You could have comorbidities that are unrelated and you would be well from a TB point of view. So clinically well, no radiological or serological evidence of exposure or TB. And we'd call that class zero. And we wouldn't see many of those patients. Although I have had a patient sent to me with weight loss and night sweats, who turned out to be hyperthyroid.
0: So, to summarise, if patients have no evidence of tuberculosis disease, or they have no um, test, such as um, interferon gamma release assay or tuberculin skin test that's positive, then we think they're very unlikely to have been infected. That's correct. And so, what happens if somebody has been infected?
1: So, we, we call it class one when we think somebody's been exposed to TB, has been in a, a situation where we think they may have been infected. And again, we would have a clinical assessment, a chest x-ray and the serological testing. Uh, if I cough TB onto you today um, and you were, your serological tests were negative yesterday or last week, they may still be negative tomorrow or next week because they may take Uh, a couple of weeks or up to a month perhaps to convert in a healthy person, convert from negative to positive. So when we first test for example a contact of an infectious case and their first test is negative we will retest them at about ten weeks later to make sure they've had time to convert their test if they were going to. So in class one you might say that's exposure but no proof of infection yet because their test is still negative uh, their x-ray again is normal and they're well. Maybe we've tested them too early, but the second um, important group in in that class, if I can call it a class or phase, would be the people who are immune suppressed and unable to mount a positive serological test, because that's what we're relying on. So if you had somebody who was very young, under the age of 12 months or two years, or somebody who had an immune suppressive state, uh, we would not... uh, withhold preventive therapy from that group of people just because of a negative test. But the reason we call that class one and differentiate that from class two which is called latent TB infection or perhaps should be called just latent TB because the word infection can be confusing. Um, Those with latent TB are defined by a positive test. So they're healthy people from a TB point of view, who have a normal x-ray where you've excluded any evidence for active TB, but they have positive serology, whether that's a tuberculin skin test or a gamma interferon assay. And as, as I said before, that's not a disease or a condition, but it's a, a subgroup of people who are at increased risk of developing TB.
0: And how important is it the time that the person was infected as to their risk of developing TB?
1: So the reason that we give preventive therapy and want to want to identify that group uh, is because um, they have an up to 10% risk of lifetime cumulative risk of developing TB after they've been exposed. So you could say that's wonderful. You've got a 90% chance nothing's going to happen to you. It would be lovely if we could work out which were the 10%. But that 10% risk, and it's usually much less than that. Um, is not a straight line from the time you have your exposure. It falls exponentially over the first two to three years and then there's a very, very small risk after that. So the the first one to two years in particular, uh, certainly two to three years, would account for at least half your lifetime cumulative risk. And therefore, that's the group that would benefit from preventive therapy, whereas the group um, that are more than two or three years from their exposure have much less benefit. That's presuming there's no immune suppression, so uh, that refers to immune-competent people.
0: So the people they're thinking about who may be immunosuppressed, are people who have untreated HIV or some other immunological condition, um, would that also include people who are taking certain drugs which suppress the immune system? And if so, what drugs are important to think about?
1: So uh, yes, it would either be an immune suppressive condition or immune suppressive therapy would be important. And the higher groups would be the untreated HIV and the higher of the uh, therapies would be the biologics that are coming out and in particular the anti-TNF-alpha therapy group. Uh, But high dose steroids and some of the other newer agents are also of concern uh, and warrant preventive therapy in most of those cases. So we have a very low threshold for giving preventive therapy to anybody with latent infection who has an immune issue, but it is relevant, uh, relative. Excuse me, it is relative. Uh, for example, we often get referrals for people going on to methotrexate and methotrexate has very little uh, TB reactivation history, if you like. So we're much more interested in TNF-alpha blockers and some of the newer biologics and also people who are immune suppressed for transplantation, let alone certain diseases. There are other diseases with a lesser um, risk factor for going on from infection to disease disease such as diabetes and renal failure.
0: So once somebody's been infected, now they could either never progress the 90% you talked about or they might be in the 10% or so, what happens to them?
1: Well, if we can find them, if we can if we can target our testing and identify them, we would we would encourage certainly offer and encourage preventive therapy. And I'm old enough to remember a day when all we had was isoniazid as a single drug for preventive therapy, which is an effective intervention with a, probably an 85 or greater percent uh, reduction in risk, which in medical terms is a pretty good intervention. Um, There was discrepancy between or discussion between six and nine months duration um, but either one will certainly give you uh, significant protection. Nothing is 100% of course in life and medicine. Um, We now have the the wonderful choices to offer people of that particular option or four months of rifampicin or uh, three months of a combination of isoniazid and rifampicin or a 12-week, once-a-week combination of isoniazid with a longer-acting rifamycin. So we've now got a lot of choices where you can now fit that into whether somebody's on other drugs and drug-drug interactions might preclude a rifamycin, or where there's uh, an older person with liver issues where you definitely would like to avoid isoniazid. So we live in a a much uh, more exciting situation now.
0: And a question that I often get asked by patients, which is, if I've taken this preventive therapy, can you tell me whether it's worked or not? Is there any test I can have?
1: Yes, yeah, so that's a, that is a very common question. They like to repeat the uh, serological test and want it to go negative. Uh, but in fact, the serological test, as I explained to them, is a test of immune memory rather than whether or not the organism is in their system. And um, so there is no test uh, that's going to say we've eliminated those organisms. All we can explain to them is that there are big studies with large numbers of people that show the uh, efficacy in reducing their risk.
0: So we've talked about class 0, which is people who are well and not infected, and we've talked about class 1 and now class 2, those who've got latent tuberculosis infection or tuberculosis infection. What are the other classes?
1: So if you're unlucky enough um, to go from being infected to developing the disease, we then would call that active TB or TB disease, trying to separate the concept out from the latent and the word infection. Um, and these are people with um, actively multiplying organisms uh, who develop, uh, often if it's pulmonary or any other site, uh, infla- inflammatory disease and symptoms. and and illness. And mostly, and particularly in other countries, the presentation is with symptoms. Um, In some countries, and certainly in our migration system, for example, there's an active case-finding process that goes on where we actually will often find a perfectly asymptomatic person with some early changes of uh, active TB disease on their X-ray. So these people would normally, if it's pulmonary, have an abnormality on chest X-ray that uh, suggests activity um, and they may have symptoms, some people will, as I said will pick up with an x-ray who are asymptomatic but at the other end of the spectrum you'll have somebody who's had months of uh, the symptoms we all learn about in medical school with cachexia uh, and weight loss and sweats and fevers and cough and eventually hemoptysis, perhaps. Um, so any, people can present anywhere along that spectrum and. If, we, if you were to do the serological testing, um, probably 85 to 90% of those would be positive, but some would be negative, so it's not such a useful test to either um, prove or disprove active TB, and we tend not to do that when we're investigating for active TB. Uh, if you did find a positive, you'd still have to use other methods to differentiate between latent TB infection and active TB disease. Um, they may have extra pulmonary TB and present, present with lumps in the neck or bony pain or whatever else it might be, but the majority would be presenting with uh, either an abnormal chest x-ray or respiratory symptoms and would require investigation to prove the diagnosis and to try and uh, to investigate to the nth degree, if you like, to try and get a culture. Culture is much more important these days than it used to be because we live in an era of drug resistance and either positive PCR testing or culture is what we need to try and prove that we've got a sensitive organism.
0: So if a patient comes in and they have these symptoms, what are the first steps in doing a diagnostic test to collect the sample for microbiological testing?
1: Well, just going back a step, obviously a good history and and some examination is is particularly useful. But if we want to get uh, respiratory uh, samples, we would usually start with three consecutive preferably early morning spontaneous sputum specimens if patients are able to. We do in many institutions have the uh, capacity to get induced sputum, where we irritate the uh, airways with um, uh, usually a, a hypertonic saline of sorts and, and get sputum specimens that way um, and the next step would be bronchoscopic um, specimens uh, from bronchial washings.
0: And when those samples are sent to the lab what tests do we order on those samples?
1: So I shouldn't say from time immemorial but for a long time we've been looking under the microscope at a variety of stains looking for uh, organisms that we call acid-fast bacilli uh, that look classically like TB organisms uh, and they've then been put into culture media which in the Uh, Years gone by might have taken quite a long time but we're now getting results in sometimes up to, sometimes as quickly as seven to ten days but sometimes as as slowly as uh, six weeks. So cultures go on for quite some time. Uh, In more recent years we've been able to do molecular testing that we call PCR, looking for um, particular molecular identification of organisms and if those are positive we can also try to identify a gene mutation that would help us know whether we've got rifampicin resistance or not, which would be the most important drug to try not to be resistant to. So those are the tests we tend to do. Sputer tend to be tested under the microscope and for culture, but any specimens that are difficult to re uh, acquire, we would certainly want to get PCR testing as well.
0: So in the request form we might write, Um, sputum, um, smear, culture and PCR, for example?
1: Yep. So I think most of the labs know that if they're getting a specimen that would be a lumbar puncture or a, a tissue specimen or a bronchial lavage, I would hope most of the labs would test for PCR even if it hasn't been requested. But we certainly don't want them to do a lot of PCR testing if it's not going to be clinically useful. Uh, so it is a, it's always a good thing, mindful thing for the clinician to think what's a good test to be ordering and to be clear to the lab what they order.
0: And what's the role of a CT scan in the presence of a negative test?
1: So I often tell my students, you know, if, if you've got an, a normal chest X-ray, it helps you say there is no active TB here, but you would of course miss more subtle changes, tree and bud changes, endobronchial TB, laryngeal TB, which are all things that um, a CT might show up that are... An, plain X-ray might not, Um, mediastinal lymphadenopathy would would also be harder to find on a plain X-ray. So if we have a patient um, where the diagnosis may be not quite so clear or we feel we've got to have a better look at what's going on on a vague abnormality on an X-ray, we would certainly uh, progress to CT. We're lucky in this country to have a lot of low-dose CT options but we would try to avoid doing unnecessary radiation if possible.
0: So we've talked about active disease. Um, Say you have a patient who comes in who has some changes uh, in one of the apices um, and you do microbiological testing, it all comes back negative. There's no evidence of disease. What is that uh, caused by?
1: So we've I've talked about classes zero, one, two, 1, 2 and 3. So class 4, as we call it that, or phase 4, is what we label old TB or inactive TB or past TB. And we've said that um, inactive TB in Australia, very few people would actually die. The mortality rates in Australia for TB are very small, but globally they are significant. So if you don't die from TB then with or without treatment, you're actually going to heal up to some extent your inflammatory process that's happened, maybe, maybe um, eliminating organisms, maybe not, um, and you're going to end up with what we call old inactive TB, which means that you're perfectly clinically well, there's no evidence of an active process going on, but you've very often got scars that are visible on a chest X-ray to uh, infer that you actually have had a TB process going on. We often divide that group in the process of um, what their past treatment has been. If we think they've had adequate treatment, which can sometimes be a hard call to make, but if we think they've had adequate treatment and a year or two have gone by past treatment, which is when you're most likely to find any treatment failures, um, then there probably isn't much point following these people. Um, But if you find somebody with old inactive TB and that you don't know what their treatment has been, or we think it has been inadequate, then we usually follow them for a period of surveillance, radiologically and clinically. Having said that, if I just go through my little table, if you did their serological testing, which we don't usually bother to do, you'd probably find two thirds would be positive. Um, The x-ray is the defining uh, thing for this particular class, because you've got your old TB scar there, and all the features of that we also learn learn about as students, I think, and they're well. So again, you have to exclude TB, like as you said. And one of the most important things before you call something a scar is to have a span of X-rays that show you that they don't change. So if your patient's clinically well and your microbiology has come up negative and you've got stable X-ray, um, you're pretty pretty confident that that is old inactive TB.
0: So. In the early 1980s, there was a study from Eastern Europe which showed that these people who've got old and active tuberculosis do have a significant risk of progression over time, similar to that of patients who've got latent TB infection as well. Um, So what approach do you recommend to those patients? Um, Surveillance with chest X-rays or treatment for latent TB or combination of both?
1: So I think that... um Probably the rates for people who are recently exposed would be higher than the rates for people who are going to reactivate later in life, presuming there's no immune suppressive issues. Um, there's also some some evidence, particularly some local evidence uh, in Australia, that it depends a little bit on the, the kind of scar you've got in your x-ray, that if you've got a simple single granuloma or small granuloma compared with a larger one or the more... Sort of extensive fibronodular changes that that you're, you're less likely to. Um, the rates of, I'll just rephrase that. That the rates of um, reactivation later in life are much less likely with certain radiological changes. Um, so certain radiological scars. So I think that would guide you a little bit. Um, whether you've got latent TB infection or old inactive TB, um, once you've given your patient your recommendations, uh, it then depends on, on what they want to do because there's no obligation to treat and there's, there's no issues with infecting other people. And so, once you know, you can be very keen to give somebody preventive therapy and they can be very keen not to take it or the other way around. So, all those factors come into whether you would give preventive therapy to either class.
0: Thank you, so um, just in conclusion, um, we've talked about the spectrum of disease from people who have no infection and who are completely well, right through to people with active disease and then residual changes uh, on chest X-ray. Now, if somebody has been previously treated for tuberculosis in the past, and then they've been exposed again recently, can they get reinfected? Or can we say that the changes that we might see are all old and, and they're protected based upon their previous immune response?
1: So, uh, you obviously can get reinfected, and um, now that we've got um, better methods to fingerprint organisms, uh, we must, I must say that in, in the old days, which I was around for, um, if somebody got TB again, we always presumed it was a treatment failure or a reactivation, and we've certainly got proof of people whose who second time around TB is a different organism. So we've got that kind of proof, but certainly you can get uh, TB again.
0: So thank you very much, Dr. Goldberg. Um, It's been uh, very helpful to think through the common um, conditions that we face in TB clinics and uh, to think about how we might approach investigating and managing those patients. So thanks very much for your time today. (laughs) It's
1: a great pleasure. Thank you, Greg.